I've been making more of an effort recently to watch nuclear war films. I've said before that I've been ruined by threads, both mentally, as I saw it when I was only three, but also in terms of being able to appreciate other nuclear war films, because almost every other one I see, I just tut and grumble. It's not as good as threads. So I am trying to approach the others with a, a more open mind. So today we're looking at another nuclear war film. And it's the 1963 film Ladybug, Ladybug. Which is actually a good example for someone who's trying to reach into a kind of life beyond threads. Because this film is not a huge, devastating nuclear epic like threads. The latter, of course, taking place over years and years, showing us generations ruined by nuclear war and nuclear winter. Instead, Ladybug, Ladybug takes place in one hot afternoon. And there is no horror in the film either. You won't see charred corpses and melting milk bottles. There's no nuclear attack in the film at all. Just the fear of one, the anticipation of one. Perhaps maybe some of you are thinking, well, this film sounds a bit dull. Well, what gives Ladybug, Ladybug a bit of added vigour is that it's based on a true story. What is the story? Well, let's see. American children were told what to do in the event of nuclear war. We've looked at this in previous episodes, such as the one about issuing them with dog tags so that they, or their remains, could be more easily reunited with family after an attack. And we know that American school children were taught to duck and cover beneath the school desk or to hunker by the walls in the school basement if the siren started. British children never received such training, probably because there was no point, but many Americans did. If the kids are at home when the end of the world comes, then of course mum and dad will show them what to do. But if it happens when you're at school, then teacher's in charge. And so many schools conducted drills, telling the kids what to do on hearing the siren or seeing the flash. Okay, if you see the flash, then your time's up. The attack has happened, and it's happened out of the blue. But if you hear the alert, then, in America, in the 50s or 60s, that meant you probably had about an hour before impact. So, some schools decided, with that precious hour, that precious window of time, they'd send their children home. Better to have them scattered to their families than all herded into one place 
feeding off one another's fear. And so, here was another drill for kids to practice. Gathering in the playground and seeing whether they could run home in time. Or perhaps it would be easier to pile them all onto the school bus and deposit them at street corners. What of the kids whose homes were too far away for that or whose parents were both out at work? They'd have to take shelter in the school with the remaining teachers. So schools who had practiced sending their children home often had the aim of making sure they could get home within 15 minutes. And Miraleste Elementary School in Los Angeles County, they had such a drill in place. And on the morning of the 30th of October 1962, just after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when tensions were probably still very high, the school received warning of an incoming missile attack. It was a false warning, of course, but the teachers didn't know that. The siren began to wail at 8.40am, just as the day was beginning, and so the principal enacted the drill, and he shouted through a loudspeaker, Teachers, move your groups home. And as they'd all been taught, the children set off on foot, to get back home within their allotted 15-minute window. The school afterward reported that there was one little boy whose home was too far away, and so he was told to stay at school with a member of the admin staff to see out Armageddon. Now, of course, false alarm, a short circuit had triggered the alert at the school, and the confusion was quickly sorted out. But in the film Ladybug, Ladybug, we take that story and then we take it further. What might have happened if the alert sounded at the school and the children were sent running home, but they weren't called back? They weren't told, oh, it's only a mistake. Now, the film is on YouTube if anyone wants to see it. It's not the greatest nuclear war film, but let's discuss it. See what it has to show us. The action starts very quickly in the film, which I was glad of. I don't like too much messing around. So here we are in an American school, an elementary school. Everyone is happy and smiley. It's a very sunny picture of America. And then suddenly, a horrible noise interrupts the school day. Probably test ring. I was at Roxbury School. No, yesterday. we had our test ring this morning at 9.30. We have it at 9.30 every morning. That's not the regular test pattern anyway. It always goes uh, white, yellow, blue, red, white. What does the yellow one mean? Manual says nuclear attack within one hour. What's going on? What's wrong with that thing anyway? We don't know. It just started up. This is the alert. On the wall, a device flashes yellow and starts to buzz. This was perhaps the first sign that in this film it's not going to be your typical nuclear war film, as we don't hear the quintessential sound of nuclear war, the infamous rising and falling notes of the siren, the air raid siren. Instead, we get a very irritating buzz. 
Well, the American system had two noises. Alert, the buzzing sound, which meant attack was likely. And then later, perhaps, it would turn into the attack warning itself, which was the more familiar rising and falling note of the siren. Of course, there were variations across states, but that was the general setup. The school secretary reminding us that this is the 1960s is all flustered and confused, as is the dinner lady and um, one of the admin staff. None of them is decisive, none of them is particularly clued up. They all gather around the yellow flashing light until the secretary decides, because it's the 60s, I will go away and find a man. A sensible man will know what to do. (laughs) Here's a clip. Mr. Calkins, may I see you for a moment? Can't it wait, Mrs. Forbes? No, I'm afraid not. Class, close your booklets. I don't want you to start writing until I come back. I'm sorry to bother you, but the yellow light's been flashing and buzzing. For how long? Two or three minutes. I got worried. Is there supposed to be another test ring? Not that I know of. Report it to the phone company and I'll be right in. So the principal, a sensible man, takes charge and they contact the phone company and they find out whether or not this is real. The phone company don't exactly put their minds at rest. They say the line is working, so you have to treat this as real. So the drill The thing they have practiced swings into action. The little kids line up in the playground. Some are loaded onto the bus to be driven home. And those who are able to walk home and make it home in time set off, led by a teacher. It's a rural school, so they're not um, walking home through city streets. They go home along empty, completely empty country roads. Of course, if they had been out of city school, if they had been walking home through city streets, they would have quickly realised this was a false alarm because there would have been no one else in the streets panicking, no one else in the streets running home, no one else in the streets trying to take cover. But as they're out in the countryside, they look around and there's nothing there to give them evidence or otherwise that an attack is coming. All they know is the alert is sounding, and so therefore... They have to get the kids scattered to their homes. So the little group of children we're following here set off along the dusty country road, led by their teacher. There is absolutely no panic here. There are some grim faces, yes, amongst the teachers, but there's no panic. People seem melancholy and shocked and troubled, but there's not a pinch of panic. Compare that to how people act in threads, for example, when the siren goes off. Screaming and running. Ah, but remember, this isn't the siren. This is merely the alert signal, the step below the siren. The alert saying attack is likely. So it's not the final stage. It's not the equivalent of the four-minute warning. It's simply the alert signal. But still, if you heard that buzzing and saw that yellow light flashing, wouldn't there be permission for a bit of panic? There's, it's completely lacking in this film. Perhaps people were simply more dignified and sensible in the 60s, but our little party walks along the road. Uh, The teacher is, she looks a bit like a zombie. She's obviously in some kind of shock. 
she just um, walks along the country road silently and the little kids are tumbling along behind her, bored and irritable and as kids are. So as they tramp along the road, the sun gets hotter and the kids start to get cranky and tired and they start to ask questions. They start to wheedle and complain and ask the teacher, but why are we here? Are we going back to school? Is it a drill? Is the bomb coming? And the frightened zombie teacher has no answers for them. To be fair to her, how could she give them answers? All she knows, all any of her uh, cast of characters know, is that the alert sounded and the yellow light flashed. This is the 1960s and they are in the countryside. There are no mobile phones, there are no TVs, there's no smartphone with the internet on it. Out on that country road, how do you know what's happening in the outside world? How do you know what's happening in the news studios, what they're reporting? There's no one there but the teacher and her kids. And so the kids start to talk amongst themselves and start to frighten themselves. Here's a clip. She doesn't know anything. Pretty dumb way to have a drill. There's something scary about it. Could be real, you know. Real? The war could have started. My father says there's got to be a showdown. What if a bomb falls on us? So what? We've got a bomb shelter. Wish we had one. Do you have a bomb shelter? Mother says we can use our basement. Daddy says no basement is deep enough. Do you think this is a drill? We usually have drills on Fridays. It may be sort of an extra one, to make sure it works. Sure. That's what I think. So with no means of communication, out there on the country road under the hot sun, there's nothing to do but keep on walking. The teacher's only duty just now is get those kids scattered to their various homes. And as they walk, the film starts to get a bit deeper and darker. Not before time. I was looking for panic and there was nothing. Instead we get melancholy and regret, this time from two of the young'uns who stop for a chat by a, a tree stump. They talk about how they're only 13 and if the bomb does come, they're only 13 and it's just not fair. Interestingly, they kept talking about, will the bomb come? Whereas when I was growing up in the 80s in Britain, it was always, will the bomb drop? Different terminology. It was always, the bomb's going to drop, not will the bomb come? But our two 13-year-olds stand by a tree stump at the side of the road and have their deep melancholy discussion. And as they stand there, we see on the tree stump the the rings running through the tree, symbolising age, of course, and continuity and wisdom, I suppose, the wisdom of the tree of knowledge, wisdom and experience, age, continuity, all of which will grind to a halt if the bomb does come. So if the film changes its tone slightly on this long, hot walk through the countryside, getting a bit darker, a bit more melancholy, it changes again when the children arrive at their various homes. One bunch of kids, siblings, have a fallout shelter and they gather there. Their parents aren't at home, so they pile in and shut the blast door, having invited a few chums to join them. 
We're often led to believe that 1960s American housewives were at home all day, baking apple pies and popping Valium pills. But the mothers here are mostly all out. So the kids, left alone, bundle into the fallout shelter, and that's where things start to get much darker. It all goes a bit (laughs) Lord of the Flies. With the children left to their own devices, left to sort themselves out in the face of this terrible danger. And so they argue about who's in charge, whose shelter is this anyway, who's allowed food and water, and whether others should be granted access to the precious shelter. And those cute little all-American kids start to become a bit nasty. Here's a clip. I'll take that chance. So will I. Well, what about us? If the bomb explodes just as you open that door, the whole shelter will be contaminated. Don't let them open the door! Don't let them! It'll only be open for two seconds. That's long enough. I've got to find out what's happening. I say you can't go. It's my shelter. Kill, 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 kill! Let's get it all Cut it out! And the film, by now needing its end, isn't afraid to get darker still. One of the kids is denied entry to the shelter as some of the children, some of the more angry and frightened and bossy ones, fear that their air supply will run out if they allow anyone else in. Remember, they all believe the bomb is coming and there are no adults to soothe them or bring order and obedience or news from the outside world. There's no one to tell them it was only a mistake, it's fine. So their fear climbs and climbs and a bit of savagery pops out. And this fear manifests itself in denying shelter to one of their friends who hammers on the door but they won't allow her in and so she runs away in a panic. She too, of course, convinced that the bomb is about to drop. Running along the country roads... She goes past an area of uh, litter and scrap iron, the local tip, I suppose, and she sees an old fridge which has been dumped there. And yes, you can guess what happens. She opens the door and crawls inside the fridge for safety, the door clamping shut behind her. At this point, an aeroplane roars overhead. Just an ordinary passenger plane, I suppose, but the youngins think... Here it is, here's the bomb. And the film ends. Ends with the kids, no doubt, realising eventually, phew, all a mistake. And everyone can sheepishly go back to school, maybe shake hands. Uh, Sorry about all that. Sorry about denying you any rations. Sorry about shouting at you. Yeah, 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 sorry, sorry. So everyone can probably... Slink back to school, all except the poor girl who had 
crawled inside that fridge? False alarm or not, we can assume that she copped it. So yes, the film certainly picked up speeds and got a lot darker as it went along, ending in the presumed death of a child. But as a film, I don't think it needed to be stretched out so long. There simply wasn't enough action here. It would have worked brilliantly as a Twilight Zone episode. But stretching it out into a film pulled the material too thin. So what are the lessons from Ladybug, Ladybug? Well, (laughs) that kids will turn into horrible wee savages when left alone and in a time of peril. Of course, we know that from Lord of the Flies. And for anyone who's seen them when they get a bit cranky and are allowed to stay up past their bedtime. On a more serious note, the film, of course, shows the importance of communications in war or in a time of civilian panic. If communications had been working smoothly, there would have been no alert error transmitted to the school in the first place. And as the kids set off on their long march home, again, if we'd had modern communications, the teacher could have been on Twitter as she trudged along the road, checking the news. Faulty communications caused the mistake, and a lack of communications perpetuated the mistake. And it all ended with a poor girl suffocating in a fridge. So that's Ladybug, Ladybug. Mm, I still prefer threads. Remember you can find me on Twitter as Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website juliemcdowell.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider supporting me with a donation at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. I know it's Christmas and money's tight, but you can choose as much or as little as you like, and you're free to cancel at any time without any hassle. Remember that some patrons, as part of their rewards, are able to request podcast topics. I've just sent an email from Tom, suggesting an episode about the difference between atmospheric and underground nuclear testing. In my recent episode about Priscilla and the pigs, I mentioned that the Nevada test site was chosen, well, one of the reasons it was chosen is because it was so flat, and that allowed nuclear blasts to run out unimpeded, allowing observers to measure its full power. Tom points out that when tests were made to go underground, obviously we lost this benefit. So what's the deal with underground tests? What do we lose and what do we gain by moving the tests underground? Excellent suggestion, Tom. Thank you for that. And I will start some research on this and we'll be looking at that soon. And before I go, let me give a shout out this week to the following excellent patrons who help fund this podcast. Amanda Nellist, Andre Russell, Andrew Apostolos, Andrew Elliott, Andy Peck, Antoine Stumpf, Auden Malman, Ben Grabham, Ben Capper, Bill Capehart, Brianna, Brian Garland, Charlie Brown, Charlie Connolly, and one of my favourite names, Chickle Chives. Thank you everyone, I'll be back on Monday.